with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Welcome to the Phrenesis podcast, wherever you are in the world. Today, I have a friend, Ira Chalef, and Ira and I have known each other for, I'm guessing, almost a decade now, sir. We have uh, served on the board of the ILA together. Uh, you are an author. You are a speaker. You conduct and lead workshops and retreats for really, I mean, whether it's U.S. senators, U.S. congressmen, you are just an incredible thinker. And I'm so excited today, Ira, for our guests to get to know you a little bit. And so it's been a while. I've tried since the beginning to get Ira, and he's always evaded me, but today he's with me. And Ira, what else do listeners need to know about you? I have been working on followership for 25 years now, and I'd be happy to share the backstory, what drives me on that, and um, anything else that uh, you think your listeners would like to know. Well, Ira, yes, I think we start there. I was feeling a little bit insecure about the name of my podcast today because, you know, it's practical wisdom for leaders, but maybe at the end of this, you will have convinced me to, to say practical wisdom for leaders and followers. <laughs> How did you get interested in this topic? What's the origin well, story? Well, first of all, you, if you changed the name, you would be in the forefront. Yeah. Since it is an actual fact that there are no leaders, zero leaders without followers, you would be on solid ground to change it to leaders and followers. And I would have a first fan in you. I'm confident in that. 
You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The backstory is that I grew up in a household where my maternal grandmother lost her entire family in the Holocaust in World War II. Early on, I became aware of what had happened. And the question became burning for me. How did this happen? Why did people follow such a destructive leader? Mm. And one way or another, that question stayed with me from early childhood, really, on. When I was reading a book called People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck, he, it was an examination of evil. Does it exist? And if so, what is its form? Wow. And he, one of the case histories he used was the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. And his question was, how did several hundred upstanding American soldiers participate in a massacre and a cover-up? Mm. And the answer he gave was that something seems to happen when people are in the follower role that they can displace their moral accountability onto the leader. Wow. And at that point, I wrote in the margin of the book, it sounds like a book on a different way of following is needed. And that was the specific moment I started to work on the book that became The Courageous Follower. Talk about The Courageous Follower. It has one of the best one of the best second halves of the title of any book ever. What's the second half of that? It's important. Thanks for raising it. It's standing up to and for our leaders. Okay. Okay. The combination so, is very, very important. Take us into that. First of all, let me say that I'm going to come back to the situation with tyrannical leaders when we talk about the, what I'm working on now. But the courageous follower is focused more on leadership in everyday life at any level of a hierarchical organization. And most people want to be able to influence the leaders above them in the hierarchy. Yep. You can only do that if you've built a relationship of trust. If they know you are supporting them, you're working to make them successful and to achieve their goals. If you establish that relationship, then when you see them doing something that does not have a good chance of success or is morally questionable or hurting morale, then you can speak up to the leader and have a fair chance of them giving you a serious audience because they know that you're on their team. Now, obviously, this will apply to leaders who are generally doing something beneficial. If they're doing something inherently evil, then we're not talking about following them. And we have to talk very differently about that. But that's not what the courageous follower is focusing on. It's focusing on um, good but imperfect leaders who need people to be able to truth tell so that they see into their blind spots and can make adjustments for the good of the mission and upholding the values. So well said. So well said. And even as you reflect on that work, Ira, what are some things that stand out for you that have really stood the test of time? 
Well, first of all, Scott, I must say how deeply grateful I am on how widely the work has been adopted and promulgated. I think it's fair to say there are probably hundreds of leadership programs that now factor in followership when almost none did 25 years ago when this book first appeared. A few started to, based on Robert Kelly's book that had come out a year or two earlier, The Power of Followership. Unfortunately, Robert's book went out of print and remains out of print to this day. Wow. Despite his efforts to regain copyright. So that was a loss. I and others like Barbara Kellerman have encouraged Robert to write another book because he's terrific, but he has not done so. So the courageous follower wound up filling a, a vacuum. And to this day, as of this morning, we held a global online monthly seminar where one of our community presents their way of teaching courageous followership. And it's fabulous, just terrific. I, I know that this is something that will have a lifespan beyond my own, and I could not be more grateful for that. As you think about that work, what questions do you still have? Now we're going to get into the, <laughs> you know, what I'm working on now. I'll tell, you, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a story. About 10, 11 years ago, the University of Wisconsin Graduate School of Public Accounting had an ethics breach. A significant number of students did something unethical to pass the, their tests. The university, as part of its remediation, instituted a yearly day where the whole graduate public accounting department stands down and does an examination of ethical behavior and leadership. So I was the first presenter uh, on that. And then they invited me back a decade later when my book Intelligent Disobedience came out. I told the same story I told this audience this morning about my grandmother and the Holocaust and my passion for changing the way the world could be misled by tyrannical leaders. But all of my work since then has been in government organizations, uh, military organizations, corporate settings, nonprofits. A very sharp young man in the audience made that observation and said, so how is your work affecting the scourge of tyrannical leaders destroying millions of people's lives? Wow. And, and I had to say, it wasn't yet. Hmm. And I still needed to work on that. And that's what I am working on now. It's a very, very difficult subject. I will not have, you know, the answer, but I believe I already am making observations that will help us address this phenomena somewhat better than we are doing now. Ira, can you share a couple of your, I've seen a preview of maybe six pages. Would you share a couple highlights of how you're thinking about it right now, how you're approaching the topic? So my working title is Followers and Tyrants. Now, I have a spectrum 
from autocrat through dictator, through tyrant. There is a distinction. Talk about those, would you? Yes. Now, an autocrat is somebody whose leadership style is very much, they're the decision maker. They don't take a lot of input. They might take some, but they will make the decision. And if you don't like the decision, you can leave. Or if it's a very brutal autocrat, you can leave. You can leave this earth. (laughs) Although now we're not quite there yet with autocrats. Okay. okay. Autocrats will more likely shut you down, shut down your printing presses, uh, shut down your ability to stand against them in an election, etc. They're not they're not yet wiping out populations. There is a then progression to dictator. Now interestingly, in our current language, we can confuse dictator and tyrant. But in Roman history, dictator was actually a role that the Senate would confer on an individual in times of great national, if you will, crisis, whether it was military or great uh, disruption to the population due to disease, they would give that individual carte blanche to do whatever they thought was necessary to solve the situation. But they only had a six-month tenure, unless it was renewed. And then power went back to the Senate and, you know, the other the other bodies. Now, if you think about it, we kind of mimic that in a very light way when we call somebody the drug czar. You, you see what I mean? Czar is the same word as dictator in Russian. So a dictator could be benign. Unfortunately, they're not usually so, because we know that power tends to distort and corrupt. So it's dangerous giving somebody that power, but sometimes it may be necessary to save the republic. The distinction between dictator and tyrant is that a tyrant now is using that power brutally with no regard whatsoever for any rules, norms, communal values, and will do whatever he, and it usually is a he, believes is necessary to keep himself in power. And if that means brutally destroying hundreds or thousands of people, so that's the way it goes. Tyrants are the real scourge of human social existence. Unfortunately, they exist throughout history. They exist today in dozens of countries. Therefore, I had to ask myself the question, if evolution sorts out the behaviors that don't contribute to a species survival, why is this strongman, autocrat, proto-tyrant still so prevalent? Hmm. They must be serving some purpose. That's a very problematic statement. But what I found in my research, that people who study natural ecology find that in every ecological system, there is a top species, and they often are a predator. Wow. And yet they keep the system in balance. And they've done very clever experiments to show if you remove the top predator or top species, within a few years, the system collapses. 
So how do we deal with this? This isn't what we want to hear. But, you know, what we learn from history is you have to deal not with how you wish humanity was, but how we are. And so the question I'm asking is, how do we take this profile, which, you know, look, in our own country, millions of people at times will vote for a strongman. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we take that profile, perhaps get what's needed from it at that moment in history, but avoid them consolidating their power and moving to dictator and tyrant? That's the crucial question I'm now exploring. And how can followers potentially do that? Take us through some examples at each of those three stages throughout history that you've come across, maybe well-known or not so well-known individuals. They could be prototypes, at least for us to hang on to for right now. They're almost ubiquitous. You see, you know, you get someone like uh, in Nicaragua at the moment, Daniel Ortega. He starts out as a freedom fighter. He starts out with great democratic values. He gets some power. He even allows himself to be defeated in a, in a democratic election. And he learns some kind of a lesson there that democracy isn't really his friend. And he wins power again. And now he ruthlessly uh, eliminates all opposition. Now, this, this is almost a prototype of what we've seen. You know, we, we forget that Adolf Hitler was elected I mean, this is sobering. Now, there are others who weren't elected, but who didn't necessarily start off as tyrants, but then as they evolved, became brutal tyrants. And in fact, created whole philosophies that said that anything less than brutal execution of the mission to change the world is weak and unacceptable. We are experiencing this today, and we, we need to find other paths to counteract this historical and contemporary trend. Have you seen any contextual factors that are similarities that create space for some of these individuals to emerge? Yes. We, we know that it's generally in times of economic distress, great social distress, great military threat that society, even though people deeply value freedom, they ultimately, if their lives and safety are at stake, they will go with the strongman if they feel they can be protected. So anytime there's this this great social disturbance is fertile field. This isn't new information. I mean, I'm not making a new observation here. The question that I'm asking that's new is what do we know about followers and how can followers, why do followers do this and how can we potentially make a difference in that tendency? I'm, I'm curious now, have you come across stories where followers were instrumental in disrupting the progression? Have you it's come very, across examples? It's very difficult. Wow. Because there are many examples of people taking to the street in opposition to a strongman who's becoming tyrannical, sometimes overthrowing that strongman. But in 90% of the cases, 
that strong man gets replaced by a worse strong man. <laughs> and you see, and, or by chaos. So we're, we're watching that, you know, we're watching that in Iraq. We, we, it's, we've lived through that. You see, I mean, Saddam Hussein was absolutely brutal. Yet as a top predator, he was somehow holding things together. And then you remove him and you get all of these would-be predators and civil war and massive disruption. Now, does that mean we condone Saddam Hussein? No. But how do we get more conscious, more aware, smarter on how and when to try to intervene in a situation like that? Well, you have like this window of interrupting progression. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a very fun window, Ira. <laughs> an important window, an important window, but oof, right? It's not, Scott, because, I, I, you know, if there were simple answers, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. You see, one of the, one of the challenges is this, a strong leader is not necessarily someone who'll become a tyrant. But you take someone, let's say like a Lyndon Johnson, who is a very strong leader and in some ways an autocrat. Actually, I think he's overly painted that way. If you listen to his tapes, he was always consulting, cajoling, coaxing uh, other members in the power structure. But many people would view him as somebody who could have become autocratic, dictatorial. That would be very dangerous to eliminate a Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson, you know, created the most important social legislation of his era, you see. So we have to get better at discerning. Which, by the way, may have occurred because of his strong approach to leadership, correct? Exactly, exactly. So we have to get better at discerning between productive strong men <laughs> or women and those who the context, as you correctly said, and whatever something is within them will tend to lead them more and more into a path of the destructive use of power. Where I'm going with the new book is ground that I have not covered before. It's all good and well to say that the tyrant couldn't exist without followers. You know, Barbara Kellerman makes this very provocative, asks this very provocative question. She asks, how many people did Adolf Hitler kill? And the answer is none. You know, there's no evidence that he personally killed anyone. Yet, do you see what I mean? Yes. Yet Adolf Hitler killed 60 million people. So, we, we, you know, we, we, we have to think about followers I think now a bit more disaggregating them. So where I'm going with this now, uh, if we had a visual, you would see the leader in, in the middle of a circle. Yep. And then you would see five concentric circles around the leader. And these are different classes of followers. Yes. In the outer circle, we have the populace. So these are followers who show up in rallies for or against, you know, some very strong leader. And they're getting their information in certain ways, and they have a certain dynamics that vivify them, if you will. 
and certain dangers and certain potential uh, positive powers. The next inward circle are activists. They're still pretty distant from the leader, but they are more committed. They have different sources of information. They're almost professionalizing their role in either support of the leader or against the leader. Okay. And for a dictatorial leader, they become very important proponents because they're really mobilizing the masses for the leader. And if they're opposition activists, they're very dangerous to the leader because they're the ones that look at what's happening in Hong Kong right now. These are the folks that you lock up first because they're truth tellers. Their courage is incredible to stand up despite you know the threats to themselves, their family, their profession, etc. The third circle are the bureaucrats. No leader of any government of any size can lead and establish policy and enforce policy without a large number of bureaucrats. Okay. And bureaucrats have a different dynamic. The dynamics are uh, both the incentives to support the leader, even when they are moving into very problematic territory, are very strong. And the disincentives against thwarting the leader are strong. So the bureaucrats become a very important and unique set of followers that need a different way of of being addressed to think about their role in intervening. The second circle, which is second closest to the leader, are the elites. These are people with, you know, the very wealthy, the top of news organizations, the celebrities, uh, people who can command large audiences or, you know, fund huge movements. They usually have a vested interest in usually in keeping the establishment intact. And they usually look on the strongman as being able to protect their interests. History shows that they often get it wrong. And that once the strongman consolidates power, they turn on the elites because the elites can threaten their position. Look at what Putin did you know, making a a case of the richest billionaire in Russia to make sure everybody else didn't even dream of of opposing him. So the elites need to think differently about their role. And then the closest circle to the leader are the confidants. These are typically family members, uh, people who've known the leader their whole life, people who somehow have ingratiated themselves with the leader. And these are the most inner circle that whispers in their ear, puts, you know, ideas, which are often very bad ideas into their minds. And they often can be more problematic than the dictator, I'm calling them proto-tyrant. How we deal with those It's going to be very, very difficult because what happens is the tyrant is very clever and knows that if he can involve the confidants in the crimes he's committing, the kleptocracy, etc., they cannot afford to let him fail. So, you know, he basically winds up 
holding, you know, a blackmail over them. How do we get them to see that and to perhaps choose a different course? These are really complex issues. I'm going to take a bite at this apple in this new book, Scott. Well, and it would seem to me that once those inner circle, the the confidants are implicated themselves, then that strength of stay the course increases, right? Yes. And now there's a core of individuals staying the course because we're all in, quote unquote. What would you say? I mean, have you studied Putin to any great depth, Ira? How did how does that work? I mean, my my impression, my image, and it's a very uneducated image, is that you have it's him. What is actually going on there? I mean, obviously, it can't just be him. Right. So first of all, I have to be clear. I'm a generalist. Yes. There are, you know, uh, many more educated people on any aspect of specifically what I'm talking about. What I'm trying to do is, you know, bring a picture together and come up with some principles that for Nisus, perhaps we can act on, you see. Now, with with Putin, he, I, I was always struck, you know, if you watch an inauguration of the president of the United States, you know, they come into the into the Capitol, and there's hundreds of people around them, everyone's shaking their hands, and, you know, all this back-slapping. When Putin was inaugurated, I don't remember where I was, but I watched. He walked by himself down this very long corridor. There wasn't a single other person there and took the oath of office. And I thought, man, look at that. Look at the difference there. Mm. Now, what we do know about strongmen who become dictators and, you know, either proto-tyrants or full tyrants is that they become paranoid. Oh, yeah. And actually, not without cause, so in a sense, they're not paranoid. They become distrustful of virtually everyone around them because they know that the way that they are treating different people they make huge numbers of enemies. And, you know, and some even of their confidants can say, this guy is going to take us over a cliff if yeah. we don't stop him. <laughs> so, so, so then you get into the palace politics. It gets really complex. I'm going to try to find a few principles that can be, you know, guideposts and hope that an army of researchers and scholars (laughs) research and work out the details. That window for interrupting progression. Any insights there on that window? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to um, codify that. You know, what are the signs that really can't be ignored? I've got a rough template, but I'd I'd rather hold off on expounding on that, you know, until we look at that more clearly. There are there's also, you know, research out there on this that I need to look at more closely. Well, Ira, it's so much fun to hear about where your mind is now because it's always in a very interesting and cool place. And I want to I don't want us to kind of wind down the conversation before we get to this latest publication which is a celebration of followership. And as you said, you have been engaged in this dialogue 
from the very early days. And as you said, I mean, your work has been, it's been foundational in how we think about the role of followers. I mean, you, Kelly, uh, Barbara Kellerman, I think just laying that groundwork for individuals, helping us see that it's not just about a leader, it's co-creation, right? There's no leadership without anyone behind them. (laughs) So the celebration of followership, what I was struck by in this volume, it's just so much fun to see inside, in some ways, your world of what you've been living for the last couple decades, your experience. So what was like what was it like? I mean, you had alluded to this in a conversation that we had maybe a couple of years ago that you were working on something like this, but I didn't imagine it to be of this scope. Yeah, let, let me say a few things about it. It was a COVID project. I had been collecting documents for 25 years. And during COVID, you know, like we all do, we organize all our closets and stuff, and I organized all these <laughs> and I had this beautiful shelf full of these 12 volumes with maybe 1,500 documents in it. And I said, that's gorgeous. Nobody's going to ever see it. (laughs) (laughs) I can resonate with your COVID. Listen, we're talking right now because of a COVID project. It was a a podcast. Right, right. right. So so I decided to curate these 12 volumes. And I, I took about 300 documents. And I let them tell the story of how followership and particularly courageous followership, because, you know, obviously I was paying attention to where my work was being used, but it soon expanded. And the book is filled with documents from all over the world of people working on followership, quoting followership, teaching followership. And by extension, it also covers intelligent disobedience, which is an extension of courageous followership. Then the last part of the book is an examination of the ILA's relationship to followership, which is a richer history than anyone knew. You go back to some foundational spaces in ILA, which I didn't know. That was really interesting. I don't even think the ILA knew it when, when I sort of forgot about it. You know, I went to the archivist at the uh, Kellogg Leadership Project, and they sent me these documents. And, you know, it shows, for example, Barbara Kellerman saying leaders are important. Followers are as important. Context is important. Well, that's what she's saying now. 25 years later, she forgot that she actually created that framework. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. And these were... This was the forerunner of the ILA and, you know, the, the thinkers that put together the vision for the ILA. So to some degree, I've been taking the ILA to task for not keeping followership as elevated as, as it was in the genesis of the ILA and the prototype of the ILA. But let me just step back one moment and say, why is this book valuable and important? Yep. It's this. Nobody has the picture of how far and wide followership has gone. These are the documents. These aren't, you know, me blowing smoke. This isn't citations. These are 300 images of documents, you know, some with the full documents, some with the first pages. And the reason that's important is because scholars who want to, they often say, 
well, where should I go? I seed the book with ideas of where further research is needed. Professors who want fellowship to take a greater place in their curriculum or even in their program can now take this documentation to their department chairs and say, this is no longer peripheral. You know, this is core. And we're, you know, we're behind the curve if we're not giving this uh, subject much more voice uh, alongside of and interwoven with leadership. So, you know, this isn't a nice to project. I think this is a really important resource. Anyone involved in an institution uh, that doesn't yet have a copy, I would hope they go online and, and get a copy for their institution. It is nice because you do, I mean, obviously there's a lot of documents, but then you do provide some narrative also. Your perspectives, your experiences, your thoughts are woven throughout the text, right? That's absolutely right. I, I put a lot of context into them, which would otherwise be unknown and lost. And by the way, since I'm encouraging people to get the book, I should say the title again. It's a celebration of followership, a celebration of followership. The story in documents of courageous followership and the followership movement. Ira, what else has been catching your eye? What have you been listening to, reading, streaming, watching lately? It may have to do with followership and what we've just discussed, but maybe it has nothing to do with that. Just something else that's caught your eye. What's kept your mind cooking? When I'm working on a book, all of my antenna go out to both history and current events that provide fodder for my thinking, creating patterns and distilling lessons. So that's really largely been the domain in which I'm paying attention. But what excites me so much is, um, you know, I view myself in the legacy stage of my career. I am just thrilled at how strong the followership community is, how many people are doing fine work in it. And I would encourage those who are also doing work in it, but needs that uh, companionship to also look at the website, teachingfollowerscourage.com, teachingfollowerscourage.com, or go to my website, irachaliff.com, and find your way there. So, you know, in a couple of weeks, I've been asked to do a courageous follower online training for the British Army. You know, th- this is this is really significant level work now. And I encourage everyone who's drawn to it to not look at it small bore, not look at it, you know, you may have to look at it small bore to get through your dissertation committee, but then figure out how to look at it large bore on how to make a difference in the world. That's That's what excites me. I think it's incredibly exciting. It's so, so fun, Ira, to get you at this stage of your writing that you've kind of given us a little bit of a sense of where you're headed in a general sense with the most recent work that you're actually working on right now. I just have so much respect because your mind is always thinking about some variation, some version of this topic. And I think it's such an incredible contribution to to the work because you're exactly right. Leaders, followers, context. Barbara's calling that the leadership system now. And I think it's it's an equal and important piece of the 
conversation because without that faction of individuals, without their energy, the individual, well, you know, Michael Bloomberg, he spent a billion dollars trying to get followers and then they didn't come. <laughs> Great example. Great. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Surprisingly, right? I mean, that's interesting. And refreshingly, you know. You know <laughs> yes. That, yeah, money doesn't buy everything in politics. <laughs> it buys a lot, but not everything. Oh. No offense, Michael Bloomberg, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Ira, I'm excited for you to return when the book is published and we'll go a little bit more in depth. But for now, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. I can't, can't thank you enough for the good work that you do. And thank you for your friendship, sir. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. Take okay. care. Be well. Astute listeners will detect a theme in the last three conversations. The conversations with Mintzberg, Ketz DeVries, and Ira Chalef have all focused in this specific realm of authoritarianism, dictators, tyrants, individuals who assume positions of authority and use that power and authority for ill. I hope that if you have not listened to all three, you take some time to do so. And I hope that you will make your own connections as you think about why it is that we as humans, at times follow these individuals when it's not in our best interests. It's actually going to lead to horrible, horrible results. Yet we find ourselves following bad leaders. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for checking in. Be well. And as always, I appreciate you listening. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.